Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Our guest today for Spirit in Action is Iris Gravel. Iris was writer-in-residence on the inter-island ferry of Washington's San Juan Islands just before COVID hit. The resulting book, Writer in a Life Fest, Essays from the Salish Sea, includes a wide variety of essays with special emphasis on climate change and the southern resident killer whales, also known as orcas. Iris also uses an assortment of creative formats for her essays, like her imagined interview with Rachel Carson using actual words from Rachel's writings. Iris verbally paints a rich picture of vital life in one corner of our planet. Thanks, Andrew Jansen, for production assistance on today's program. And remember to check the bonus excerpts to this interview on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. Iris Gravel joins us via Zoom. Iris, how wonderful to have you back today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It is wonderful to be back. And sadly, we're not in person with each other like the last time that we had a conversation like this, but I'm grateful that we can still connect in this way. Thanks for uh, inviting me. And last time, back in 2018, when I interviewed you about hiking naked, that was in person, the French General Conference gathering. But the first time I interviewed you was way back in 2009. Right. About Hands at Work. So we've got a history here and a lot of books. We do. You might want to clarify for your listeners that when you said you interviewed me about Hiking Naked, it was about the memoir entitled Hiking Naked. <laughs> well, that too, which includes some mention of about hiking naked. So, True. <laughs> yeah. So we're not getting all libertine on you folks. Don't worry about that. And besides, you can imagine whatever you care to as you listen to us for spirit action. <laughs> But again, 2009, 2018, and now 2022, and we've got a new book, Writer in a Life Fest. You know, I don't know that I asked you this. I know we talked a bit about your transition away from being a nurse. In a lot of ways, I see what you've written in Writer in a Life Fest is so much about concern about the Salish Sea, so much concern particularly about the whales. As a nurse, you were caring for people, and now maybe you just opened your umbrella to include a larger group of entities on this planet you want to care for? Oh, that's a, an interesting perspective. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but I definitely in recent years have just broadened my perspective on the interconnectedness of all all of life and all beings. And during this time of climate crisis, I'm more and more aware of the threats to all of life. And when it comes to where I live now on the Salish Sea, just learning as much as I possibly can about all of the life in and around the Salish Sea and so aware of our interconnectedness. So I guess it does make sense, you know, that what led me to work in caring for the health and well-being of other humans, that this would be a natural extension that just my awareness of how we all connect with each other and caring for people when they are ill and caring for and about other living creatures, particularly when they're threatened. 
I guess it's all part of the same thread. And there's so many entities threatened because of climate change, because of the massive sixth extinction event that we're in the midst of. Right. Let's talk about the book overall. It's Essays from the Salish Sea. Writer in a Life Fest is the name. So how often did you wear a life vest while you were writing? <laughs> and what, didn't that cramp your style when you're typing on your computer? I actually only wore a life vest once while I was riding on the ferry, which is a Washington State ferry that's called the Inter-Island Ferry that travels among four ferry-served islands in Washington State, Lopez Island, where I live, Orcas Island, Shaw Island, and San Juan Island. I had commuted on that ferry for about five years when I worked as a school nurse on neighboring Orcas Island, and I was writing at that time as well, and I would often on my commute write on the ferry. And when I started on this project, I realized that the ferry would make a really good writing space. So I dreamed up this idea to create a position as of writer in residence on that inter-island ferry, which didn't exist, but I was able to connect with people in the ferry system and propose this idea, and they agreed to it. And this ferry is one that, it's the only one in the Washington State ferry system that if you walk onto the ferry, you don't have to pay a fare. If you drive on, there is a fare, but to walk on, there's no fare. So I was able to do that for free. And it just goes around those four islands. It never goes to the mainland from around eight in the morning until eight at night. And I could get on and ride as long as I wanted to until the last moment that I would be able to get off on Lopez and go back home. So I did that for a year and usually a couple of times a week. And I will get to the life vest because once a week, the ferry crew does some safety drills And I happened to be on the ferry writing one day, and they were doing their safety drill. And one of the crew members said, come on, you can be my guinea pig. And they were doing a fire drill. And so she showed me where the life vests were stored, showed me how to put one on. And she instructed me about, you know, what position I should get in if I had to jump off of the ferry. So I had this firsthand experience as, as close as I hope to ever get to what it would be like to have to escape from the ferry. And afterwards, the crew member, Terry, said to me, well, if you're ever here when we have an emergency, you know, you can help us. So there I was in my life vest. And as often happens with writers, that image just led me to think about a lot of things related to things, you know, to save ourselves, to protect ourselves. And as a writer, just the vulnerability I also feel as a writer. And so it ended up as an essay called Writer in a Life Vest and seemed like a good title for the whole collection too. And folks, Iris Gravel has written a whole lot of variety of essays This is not just everyone is a topic. There's poetry there too, kind of free verse. There's lists. There's all kinds of ways of thinking about it. There's instruction manuals. So you'll find the diversity of the kinds of presentations that Iris has included in her essays. You'll find them quite interesting and you'll learn a lot. But again, what I came away with most is the passion you and many other people feel for the southern resident whales. 
since the southern resident whales are a major character in the story that you're painting with Brighter and Life Fest, I think you should introduce us to them. What are these whales? Why are they significant? I mean, they're, you know, animals are cute, right? But people like to see them do tricks. Well, that is a big subject and entire books have been written about orca whales in general and the southern resident killer whales in particular. The most recent one that is just fantastic is called Orca by Linda Mapes, who is a Seattle Times reporter who covers the Salish Sea and Coast Salish peoples. She just writes magnificently about the southern resident killer whales. For me, it was a challenge in this short collection and these essays to condense the vast amount of information about the Southern residents. And one way that I did that was with an essay form called the Abecedarian, which follows the alphabet. And so going through the alphabet, I have lots of information in this piece called O is for Orca, like A is for age, B is for breathing, which is one of the most fascinating things for me about the killer whales is that they're voluntary breathers. So they have to consciously remember to take a breath every time they need air. And it also means their entire brain can't go to sleep because they've got to, you know, half of their brain has to stay awake so they can keep breathing all night long. Go through the alphabet. E is for echolocation. It's kind of like the sixth sense of orcas and it's how they communicate and how they, you know, by making clicks and whistles that bounce off of, you know, in the water. And I mean, I don't totally. Well, it's whale sonar. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, how an ultrasound works with the sound creating an image of something so that they can see the shape of, of the object. They can also see inside it. And it's how they locate food and prey and hazards. And that prey is P-R-E-Y? That's right, yes. I was actually hoping that it was P-R-A-Y. I just think it would be wonderful to know that a whale was praying. I have no doubt that they pray in some form. Another one is P is for pod, and killer whales are really social, despite the name, (laughs) and they live in social groups that are called pods, and those are whales that are related to each other. And the southern resident whales are divided into three pods, J, K, and L. And there may be a few to to 20 or more animals in a pod. And they, they really have strong family bonds. They share food, they hunt together, they sleep together, play together. And I bet they pray together too. <laughs> so anyway, there's there's just so much about them. But the southern resident killer whales, in the summertime, they come to the southern part of the Salish Sea in the North Pacific. And they are fish eaters. Unlike other whales, they eat fish, primarily salmon and specifically Chinook or King salmon that are really high in fat. And the Chinook or king salmon are endangered themselves. So the source of food for the southern residents, the fact that it is endangered and the numbers have really decreased, puts the southern residents at risk because their primary food source is limited. So there's the southern community and the northern community, and they're all kind of live around Vancouver Island in British Columbia and then into the inland waters of Washington state. We mostly see the northern community more around uh, Vancouver Island, although they do come further south. And then for the southern residents, the spring through summer feeding grounds 
are more in Washington state. So we, we see them in our area, but because the, the northern residents eat mammals, and so they are not endangered in the way that the southern residents are. And by mammals, you mean things like seals? Yeah. I mean, they eat fish as well, but seals and, you know. Sea otters, I assume they're out there. Well, actually, there are river otters and sea otters. <laughs> so uh, they have much more uh, a bigger food source available to them, northern residents. I think what you're saying is the problem is that the southern resident killer whales are picky eaters. <laughs> It causes them problems because there's one food source and that food source is problematic, not available near as much as it needs to be to keep them fed. Yeah. And I don't know that it's so much picky eaters as how they've evolved as as a species of, of the food that, you know, serves them the best. And until we started having some of the problems with pollution in the water and noise, and then uncontrolled salmon fishing, there was plenty of the salmon available to them. And that is, you know, how they evolved to that is what their bodies need. So it's not something that they can just say, okay, Southern residents, now we're going to start eating something different. You know, it is so much a part of who they are as a, as a species. And what they eat is not just fish, but Chinook salmon is the specific kind of fish that they eat. Yeah. Again, I still think this issue is, you know, yeah, that's a picky eater. It's like, I'll <laughs> eat fish, but only this kind of fish. I have some granddaughters who exhibit this kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, although the Chinook salmon, like I said, they have the highest fat content of all salmon. And so it's the most efficient food for them as well. They don't have to you know, hunt as much of it to get the calories they need. And, you know, from time immemorial until recently, it has been abundant and really wasn't a problem for them. Anyway, there's so much more I could say about the Southern residents. And, you know, I am the very first to say that I am not a marine biologist. I am not a, a scientist. I am a myself a local resident who wanted to know more about my neighbors. And, you know, I've, I took a marine naturalist training program through an organization in the San Juans called the Whale Museum. And I've read a lot. But, you know, my first career was as a nurse, as you mentioned, and uh, I'm a writer, and I'm just kind of a regular person who who is concerned and wanted to learn more about these animals. But there's so much more information out there that people can expound upon much more eloquently than I can. And, and my goal with this essay collection was to make some of that information a little bit more accessible for people, both in some lighthearted ways and in some thoughtful ways too. But that, you know, just might be easier to take in and identify with, I guess. Again, folks, we're speaking with Iris Gravel. Writer in a Life Fest is her latest book. It's a collection of essays that she wrote as writer in residence on the Inter Island Ferry. Now, again, you said there's four islands. The ferry that runs between the four of them is free as long as you're not bringing a car, just as you're doing a walk in. And I find this very interesting in general that how it operates. I think it's great because, in fact, usually our government pays for the roads and all kinds of 
infrastructure which uh, allows us to get around. Obviously, there don't exist roads between all of these islands that you're talking about. So in order to be supportive of people who need to commute from one place to another, instead of building a road, they provide a ferry. As I said, there's a whole bunch of essays that are part of Writer in Life Fest. Some of them talk about the ferry, but some talk about orcas, some to talk about yourself and how you do things in the world. You're actually a writer in residence during this one-year period. Since the ferry was already free, did that mean anything else? Did they give you free coffee? How did? <laughs> what were the perks of this? Yeah. You know? No, there was no free coffee because coffee and food service is run by a separate concessionaire on the ferry. Although I did develop some wonderful relationships with the folks who worked in the galley because that was where some good conversation happened. I guess the main thing was I never had to get off of the ferry. You know, I would just get on and stay until I was ready to finish my day. They got to know me and they just said, so are you, San Juan Island is where the ferry goes at the end of the day, you know, to rest overnight. And so whenever they go to San Juan, even though the ferry is going to keep going, they they usually check to see how many people have have stayed on the vessel because that's where most people get off. And so they would just say to me, are you staying on today? And I didn't have to get off there. And they also did make a little table tent sign for me that had the official Washington State logo on it and my name as writer in residence. So I could set that out on the, I would usually sit at a table that was like a restaurant booth with my sign out and my laptop and books and my journal and my thermos of coffee and had my my sign so that people would know something about who I was <laughs> and why I was there. You know, you had traveled, you had written while taking the ferry. Why did you want to do this on the ferry? I have had a love affair with the ferries ever since we moved to the San Juan Islands. Anybody who has ever traveled, you know, on a big vessel like a ferry and on the water, I think, can understand how exquisite it is to ride along relatively smoothly. The scenery is different all the time. You know, to be surrounded by water and and then whatever landscapes are around. And as I said, when I worked as a school nurse on a neighboring island, my commute time uh, was often a pretty quiet, uninterrupted time for me to do some silent worship and also some writing. And that was just from going from home to one island. So the thought of being able to stay on for hours if I wanted to, or if my schedule would allow it, was quite appealing to be able to, at any moment, look up from my journal or my laptop and see firs and cedars, madronas, all matter of sea life, birds, and just the way the water changes from moment to moment, and a great place to watch people as well. <laughs> you know, it seemed like an ideal kind of a setting. And it also helped that cell phone reception is pretty sketchy when you're out on the Salish Sea. And I didn't have easy access to the internet. So there were a couple of big distractions that were just eliminated for me that couldn't get in the way of my commitment to writing and my creativity. So all of those things together, you know, seemed like a pretty ideal spot. And since I was writing about the Salish Sea, what better place than to just be in it? 
it hasn't always been known as the Salish Sea. Right. Could you explain the genesis? One of your essays is about that specifically, but how did it get there? Yeah, I titled one essay, Petition for a Name Change. And I actually wrote the essay in the form of the legal document that is used in King County District Court in the state of Washington if someone is applying for a legal name change. And so in this piece, you know, it was this body of water that had previously been known as Puget Sound or Northern Puget Sound that was requesting a name change. And this petition that is used for people asks things about why you're changing your name and whether you've changed your name before, if if it's made for any illegal or fraudulent purposes. And so it was a great form to explore why this was happening. And it really was about a 20-year process that a professor from Western Washington University, a marine sciences professor, kind of got that going. And he worked in collaboration with various Coast Salish tribes in Washington and First Nations tribes in Canada, looking for a name that was really more reflective of the geography and the history and the culture of the place. Puget Sound was named after another European explorer, Peter Puget. And the Salish Sea is geographically covers a much wider area than Puget Sound, which is pretty much the waters around the metropolitan Seattle area. So they undertook this many years process of seeking unity, really, among many people who had a great investment in, you know, personal investment and historical and cultural investment in the naming of of a place that is central to their way of life. There finally was that unity and it was approved by the Washington State Board of Geographic Names, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names, and the Geographic Names Board of Canada, (laughs) and the Cabinet of the Province of Canada. Um, Gosh, when I think about how we make decisions and come to unity in Quaker meetings, uh, this just kind of boggles my mind, and it's no wonder that it, it took about 20 years uh, for that to happen. But it has been a really important action, I think, to acknowledge these waters and the peoples who have been around them and have cared for them for millennia. And that, again, is the Coast Salish people, right? which I think most people haven't heard of that tribe necessarily. There's a lot of names that you could have chosen from, though, I mean, because there's many different indigenous peoples going by many different names, right? Right. Well, and Coast Salish is really just more of a broader term that encompasses many, many, many tribes of first peoples in Canada and indigenous peoples in the U.S. So it's many tribes native to those areas, and they have many different names, but they have in common this identity as being Coast Salish peoples. And so calling this water that is so central to the region, the Salish Sea, seemed to be more encompassing of that. And the point is doubly made in your book, Iris, because you start with an acknowledgement of America's first peoples. You start with that. So uh, clearly you're sensitive to the idea, just not every explorer, the person who came in who happened to be from Europe that gets to name things. (laughs) Right. And sadly, I mean, you know, that's been the tradition 
throughout colonization is that that is how places were named and names that were used by the indigenous peoples were not recognized or maintained. And that's been another big part of my learning process of living where I live and in working on this book was just to learn things that I had never learned and had never known about the the history and culture of this place. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're visiting with Iris Gravel. Her website, irisgravel.com, in case you don't know how to spell G-R-A-V-I-L-L-E, in case you don't know how to spell Gravel, come via NorganSpiritRadio.org. That's our website, and we have links to all of our guests. And there are two previous interviews with Iris back from 2009-2018 about other books that she's written. The, the one thing I didn't interview you about, Iris, really, is about nursing. There's first responders, there's essential workers. A writer is perhaps not an essential worker in the way that a nurse is. So, in fact, while you were working on the book, while you were doing your writer-in-residence work, COVID intervened, right? So how long was it into your term that this happened? Oh, actually, my term ended in 2019. It was 2018 to 2019. Oh, I was wrong. Okay. My writing of this book was, you know, all through those first two years of the COVID pandemic. But my residency ended in December of 2019. And we had selected another person to be a writer in residence. And she started in January of riding and riding on the ferry. And uh, she and I actually rode and wrote together one day. But then, as you know, early in February is when the first case was identified in Washington State in Seattle. So there was nobody riding in the cabin of the ferries for many, many months, except, you know, for the crew. You weren't even able to go into the cabin at the very beginning of the pandemic. So the whole vision of a writer in residence was not possible And so then we had her continue for a second year because she really didn't get to do much of this residency in the first year. And then in the second year, you know, it still wasn't optimal for most of the the year to spend hours in an enclosed space like a ferry cabin. So she has remained in that position. And my plan is to see if we can, by the end of this year, put out a call for another writer in residence and hope that in 2023, it'll be possible and desirable for people, uh, some writer to want to ride and write on the ferry. I've already had several people since this book came out, I've had several writers approach me and say, is there going to be another one? So I think there will be interest. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID, but it does appear that it will be possible and people can be safe and healthy doing that. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll continue or pick it up again. But like I said, I did most of the writing. It was, you know, a couple of years to put these essays together. And, and that was at the height of COVID. And for a while, I, I had a contract with the publisher and a deadline. And like many people who did all kinds of work, and especially creative people, it was really hard to muster the creativity to do the work. And I was really had doubts about whether I could do this. And then in the midst of fretting about that and trying to figure out how to sustain my creative work, I had some kind of shift. 
And then I was just so grateful to have this project to focus on. And I felt tremendous freedom to experiment with these different forms that you and I have talked about and you've mentioned. And it ended up being a real gift that I I had that project to focus on. Again, I've said that the Southern Resident Killer Whale is maybe the number one persona in the book, more so than Iris Gravel, right? Absolutely. (laughs) The nomenclature was very interesting to me. You said there's three, essentially they're families, different pods of whales that are part of the Southern Residents. And they're all known individually. Right. That made me feel different to mm-hmm. be able to identify every individual, both with the name that scientifically, you know, that whether they're part of the L or the J or the iPod and the number they are in that, but the name that goes with it. Right. Common name. Mm-hmm. Explain how that is all put together, how long that's been running. And do we really know every single whale? I'm pretty confident that there are, you know, the, the scientists who study them do know every single whale. It's interesting to hear some of these scientists talk about, you know, their knowledge of being able to identify the characteristics of the whales, the way their dorsal fin or their pectoral fin is and their markings and the number of people who are really observing them closely. But each whale, and I think this is a true probably with all whales and with northern and southern residents, but I know most about the southern residents, JK and L pods. Each whale that is born is, you know, they, they know which pod or which family they're a member of, JK or L. And then, so they're given that and then a number based on that they're the next whale that was born. So J35, you know, was the 35th whale born. And then the Whale Museum has a program that people can nominate names for a common name for the whale. And the thinking behind that, and I don't know when that began, but the thinking behind it was that, you know, humans would probably be able to identify more and empathize more with another mammal that has more of what we think of as a name as opposed to a letter and a number, (laughs) And I wrestled in this book about how to name these different whales, because there are uh, several individual whales that I write about, most notably J35 or Tahlequah, whose infant died, and, and she's the whale who pushed her babies for 17 days in what many people believe was a grieving ritual. So I debated about calling by the scientific name or the common name. And I opted doing both because I knew that I suspected that any scientist who read the book would be really upset if I didn't use those names. <laughs> and for probably the people that I was most gearing this to or hoping to be my audience are people like you and I who would relate more to a mammal, a whale called Scarlet, <laughs> or let's see, I'm trying to remember some of the other names. I mean, Tahlequah for sure is one that people know. But we would relate more to those kind of names than K-12. Don't forget Slick. Right, right. And of course, since you've asked me, I've just drawn a blank on some of these names. There are some some fabulous names. Many of them are indigenous names or, you know, come from straight Salish language. So I've had some readers say it's a little bit clumsy reading because you've got the the two kinds of names, but it seemed to me important to use both of those systems because they're important with with these particular animals. 
You mentioned already the situation. A baby is born, its mother carries her, it carries the child on its head. That seems an unusual thing. We're used to thinking out on land. But as a sign of grief, as a burial ritual, it's it's hard exactly to know what it is. But describe again. It was like a thousand miles or so she traveled. Yes. Yeah, yeah, a thousand miles over 17 days. And other members of her pod followed her. And I mean, people all over the world were watching her from scientists were at a, a safe distance to not disturb her. But pictures were being broadcast all over the world. And many people were following this site. And from my reading, you know, it's not unusual when a baby is sick and or dying that there there is something like this this was like more than anybody had ever witnessed before a longer period of time and some people believe that i mean the the baby only lived for i think maybe i think it was like a a half hour after its birth but she you know carried it was on her on her head and it would slip off and she would just keep staying close to that newborn calf. And finally, people think that it just kind of, you know, had deteriorated so much, she couldn't carry it anymore. And that was when that that ended. But other whales followed her around and people who observed it could really relate to that experience of loss and grief. So I think that was just another and and it was just so symbolic of the threats to these mammals. The toxins that are in the water go into the mother's breast milk and those go to the babies. And and then not having adequate food supply and being disturbed by vessel noise, you know, all of those things create a pretty hostile environment for these mammals. Every single one of them is really important. And I want to talk individually about each one, Iris, but again, reminder, this is Northern Spirit Radio. The program is Spirit in Action. We've been doing this for 17 years, and we've had Iris on two times previously in those 17 years. On our website, you'll find links. So you'll find link to irisgravel.com and to all of our other guests from all these years. Uh, there's also a place for you to post comments. We love interactive communication. So please post a comment when you visit, give us suggestions of other guests we should have. Let us know what we're doing right and wrong. And because we want to grow by what is of interest and value to you. Most companies are mainly interested in what's going to bring them in advertising money. We don't do that because we're not serving corporations or government. We're serving our listeners. So please Make use of NordenSpiritRadio.org to help us work with you to make a better radio program. There's also a place where you can donate. Uh, that's how we fund this. It's not because of government or corporations. It is because of you. And please support the local community radio stations that carry these programs wherever you are. So right now, there's Northern Spirit Radio programs in some 45 stations nationwide. But one of the first five stations to carry it is KLOI right there on Lopez Island. And so I have to give a big shout out to all my friends there on Lopez. I really appreciate everyone and uh, both Kathy Booth and Dixie Budke who I communicate with weekly, I really feel connected to 
KLOI to the people of Lopez Island. And this breaking news right now via Northern Spirit Radio, I'm hoping that next year, that is to say in July of 2023, that I'm going to visit Lopez Island. That's the hope. The Friends General Conference gathering that I go to each year is going to be held in Oregon, which is you know a couple thousand miles west of me. <laughs> Since we're going to be over there, my wife has said we have to go visit our friends on Lopez Island. So, oh, folks, I, maybe you can give me the key to the island or whatever you do. <laughs> or maybe it's the drain plug to the island. I'm not sure what you do <laughs> for an island as opposed to a city. We'll, we'll probably give you some delicious baked goods from Holly B's Bakery and uh, some of the other bounty that we have in, on the farms and the waters. Thanks so much. I'm going to be looking forward to that. But folks, mainly what I want you to do is remember to support those local community radio stations who give us an alternative to mainstream media, which is serving other people's purposes. You want something serving your purpose, please connect with your local community radio station. Again, Iris Gravel is here. Writer in a Life Vest is her latest book. She's got all these essays, particularly about the whales. And I want to cover a couple of those points because they seem so important to me. That How are we going to improve this world if we don't even understand who we're living next to? And you do a great deal to further that education for us. You're drawing on other people's research and information. Yes. But the fact that you're bringing it to us makes and in a very easily digestible form is particularly valuable. You mentioned already that there's three different factors which seem to be degrading the lifestyle, the the survivability of the whales. One of the factors that is hurting their chances for survival is noise. And th there's kind of... Uh, one of the ways we get people to care about whales is by going outside seeing whales. And I understand that there's a protocol that you don't get within several hundred feet of a whale now because the noise of the boats, in fact, make it hard for the whales to communicate, know where they're seeing. It's like a, a bat, which uses echolocation as well to identify where it is. If you've got noise, it, it can crash. It, it can't find its prey and so on. So talk about what the restrictions and how long have those been in place and are they actually helping at all? They've been in place for a good while and they continue to be reevaluated. Our Washington State governor developed a task force a number of years ago about the southern resident killer whales to protect them. And they made some adjustments and have some organizations have developed things like the Be Whale Wise program. And boaters are supposed to raise a flag that is recognized all boaters if they see a whale as a signal for everyone to stay the recommended distance from them. There are not good enforcement systems, though, for if people violate that. And the reputable whale watching businesses adhere to that and work in collaboration and cooperation with conservation groups to protect the whales. You know, there are some that do not follow those regulations. And probably even the greater factor is private individuals who, you know, they're not running businesses and don't have the same awareness or concern to follow those rules and regulations. 
it still happens a great deal. And it's not uncommon. I mean, the way that people may know that there are whales in the area is because they see these clusters of boats, whale watching boats and private boats. And you know, then there's probably whales in the area. So that is one concern. Another concern is the noise levels that accompany these big container ships, freighters, many of them carrying oil and lots of work going on to limit the quantity of of those vessels. And with the fuel crises the way they are and the efforts to get less expensive fossil fuels transported different places has resulted in an increase in these tankers that are just, you know, the underwater noise that they generate is just unbearable for the whales. And it's it's so interferes with their sonar transmission and efforts to increase, you know, get permission to increase those freighters has been a big concern. And there's been a lot of work to prevent that kind of expansion. And it involves Canada and the US. And so there's, you know, it's not a simple matter to (laughs) not just the governments, but also private industries, private businesses, you know, that are that's their source of income is this transport of oil and, and other fuels. So it's it's a really complicated issue. And yet the science is very clear that that kind of noise pollution is a major threat to southern resident killer whales and, and a lot of other life on the Salish Sea. Another factor is pollution. And I don't think we really know to which degree each of these factors is the significant factor, uh, if it's causing half the problem or a 10th of the problem or whatever. But we know that the pollution is there, even in this pristine area connected to the Pacific Ocean. You know, you're destroying my vision of what the Pacific Ocean is like, and the Salish Sea in particular. Well, I think we've all seen plenty of pictures and heard stories of all kinds of toxic waste that goes into our waterways, whether it's plastics or fuel or chemicals of all kinds. So again, you have mammals that are ingesting things that have been contaminated, and then that goes into the mother's milk and and goes right to those fragile newborn babies. If you can think of a 400-pound whale as a fragile newborn baby, they are just like human infants are. And it's a very real factor. And and you're right, there's no way probably to know for sure what percentage of risk there is. But we know that those three factors are really threatening to the whales. And we have to be working on all of them to try to really create a, a healthy environment. So, And of course, those things that are affecting the whales affect all the life around the Salish Sea. I've identified the whales as the primary personage in Rider and Life Fest. But would you at all say that it was because of the whales that you felt moved to become a writer in residence to write this book? Or was that a side effect of doing that? So you're, you're sitting on the Salish Sea, you're traveling it regularly. Is, is that what raised your awareness or was your awareness which got you to sit there? I think that my growing awareness of the climate crisis in general was a big factor. When I finished my memoir, Riding Naked, (laughs) not Riding Naked, maybe that'll be the next book, Hiking Naked, (laughs) 
And I was discerning, you know, what am I to write next? I have felt a calling to write and this is a part of my ministry. And I didn't really have a clear idea when I finished the memoir, what was next. And as I discerned on that, I got more and more clear because of what I was learning about climate change and the effects locally, which is where I tend to work is locally. I just felt that I should be turning my ministry of writing to something that might help ease some of that crisis. And around that same time that my memoir came out was the crisis for the Southern resident killer whales was becoming just that much more obvious. The numbers were drastically decreasing. The the numbers of the king salmon were drastically decreasing. So that all kind of came together. And because I knew of what it was like to ride and ride on the ferry, it just seemed like it would be make sense, you know, to put those together and just add another little twist (laughs) and another little way, very small way of being a little more public with my writing and what it was I was hoping to accomplish with this work. I wanted to follow a comment you just made about your discernment. And for some people, this will look like a sidetrack, but it's completely relevant to spirit in action. You were discerning which way you were going and you said this is as a ministry which, because it doesn't follow mainline religion, because coming out of Quaker sensibilities, it, it wouldn't be uh, someone getting up and up in front and lecturing people in that way. But one of the things that is pretty typical in Quaker circles when someone has this kind of a leading, as you called it, a clearness committee or an anchoring committee would sit with you, would would nurture you, would help keep you close to what you're being led in. Did you have that kind of help from Lopez Island friends or maybe from the yearly meeting you're associated with, the wider group of Quakers? I didn't have that formally. I have had clearness committees in the past related to the work that I'm called to do. And I had had one when I was discerning about going back to school into a writing program So I have had kind of a core group of people from my local meeting who were with me in that discernment about how to pursue my writing. And uh, one of them is also someone who I'm in a writing group with. (laughs) So I've had support of individuals and, and had it throughout this project who really knew, you know, what the source of my writing was for me and who I could test things with. You know, it was much less formal than a clearness committee or an anchor committee, but provided for me, you know, some of the same kinds of things that those structures would. So I have felt always in my work as a writer that at the core of it is discerning, you know, how to be true to what it is I'm called to do. And another of the factors is climate change. You know, climate change is in some ways elusive because we can't say now it's hot it was cold it's nothing that near that simple there's right. the amount of rainfall or the number of storms is generally an indicator there's a, a running joke that those of us in Wisconsin way up here on the northern end where we get real winters unlike the kind of fussy little things that you call winter over there <laughs> in the local right. island <laughs> but still the idea here is well you know global warming 
we're all in favor of because let's warm up this this frigid area. I mean, obviously we have hot summer days just like anyone, but maybe hotter than what you get. But avoiding the cold extremes would be significant to us. Are you actually seeing climate effect happening in the islands there, the San Juan Islands and in the sea around you? Well, again, you know, I'm I'm not a climate scientist, but I guess if I've learned any single thing from working on these essays and doing this study is just how interconnected everything is. And when one part of the system, the ecosystem, is threatened or damaged or diminished in some way, it's going to affect so many other aspects. And the rate at which those changes are happening now, all those different pieces, you know, can't evolve quickly enough to survive it. And so definitely the temperature of the waters, the rivers, the streams that flow into the ocean, they are rising. And that has a big impact on the viability of these salmon eggs (laughs) that produce new salmon every year, which is a major food source for southern resident killer whales. And so every little bit matters. In fact, this piece that I wrote called Salish Sea Account, I begin it with an epigraph by Greta Thunberg, you know, the young activist from Sweden. And I think she says it so perfectly. Every single person counts, just like every single emission counts, every single kilo, everything counts. And to me, that's why climate change, whether it's hotter, colder, drier, windier, you know, whatever, it all affects everything and it all counts. One other very interesting device that you used in one of your essays, Iris, and again, folks, Iris Gravel is our guest here for Spirit in Action. The technique you use is an interview. The first one you do is specifically with Rachel Carson. Of course, Rachel Carson's been gone for a long time. People will know her as the writer of Silent Spring back when I was in high school, and we're talking about environmentalism. Rachel Carson was really the beginning for so many of us of addressing the damage that's happening to our environment So you had an interview with her, even though she was dead. And this isn't because you're clairvoyant or anything. (laughs) But you did it in a wonderfully instructive, helpful, and I think really powerful way. Mention what you did. Well, it's a technique that I stole from another writer I greatly respect, Kathleen Dean Moore, who did a similar thing. She called it a posthumous interview in a book that she wrote. And I'm just double checking to be sure I get the the title of her book right. She interviewed Edward Abbey posthumously in in her book called Great Tide Rising about climate change. And she had used quotes from his writing for this interview. So I thought about, well, who would I like to interview and whose writing still is speaking to us today? And I thought of Rachel Carson. And so I was not introduced to her writing when it first came out. It was not anything that any of my teachers taught or that my family introduced me to. But I've certainly read a lot since. And and I was so moved by what what she wrote and how prescient she was and, and her her knowledge of what was already happening then that is still happening today. 
So I thought, well, what question could I ask her that would cause her to respond to me with some of these things that I had read that she had written? You know, so I, I actually reverse engineered <laughs> this interview and thought, what question could I ask her that would lead to a response of her powerful writing? So that's what I did for this, quote, interview. <laughs> Could you give us an example, just one of the questions and answers? And again, this, these are words of hers that you're quoting. So you're not making up any of this. That's right. And I footnoted them so that you know, readers will have the, the source of where it came from. Well, one of my favorite ones was when I said to her, uh, in 1952, you received the National Book Award for The Sea Around Us. At the time, it was described as poetic. Do you think of your writing as poetry? And this quote is from Rachel Carson's writing. So she answered my question by saying, the winds, the sea, and the moving tides are what they are. If there is wonder and beauty and majesty in them, science will discover these qualities. If there is poetry in my book about the sea, it is not because I deliberately put it there, but because no one could write truthfully about the sea and leave out the poetry. So beautifully put on her part and your part. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you end up feeling closer to her having you, of course, immersed yourself to a degree in her writings. Yes. And then you entered into relationship with her. Absolutely. And folks, that's just one of the kinds of essays that Iris Gravel did in Writer in the Life Fest when she was acting as writer in residence on the inter-island ferry right by the San Juan Islands, the place where she lives in Washington State. I recommend that you get a hold of it. And each of these essays is somewhat different in content, direction, insights, uh, subject matter, you're covering a wide gamut of information, although at the center of it all, as I've said, is the well-being of the southern residents, killer whales, the orca whales, the, the whales that share that neighborhood <laughs> with Iris and the other residents, including all of our fine friends on Lopez Island. So, Iris, thank you for pursuing your leading, being faithful to it, and bringing it to us with such creativity and delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. And again, folks, her website is irisgravel.com. There's two other interviews I've done with her, one about her book, Hands at Work, and the other one, Hiking Naked, that are available on northernspiritradio.org, along with the link to her. Thank you again so much, Iris, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh